uh, for coming. Um, looking forward to, to finishing Romans 13. Um, Lord willing, I think we might just have two more um, times in Romans. Uh, maybe three, but but probably just two. And so uh, we will be in uh, a little bit faster here in chapter 14 and 15. But uh, this chapter 13 is uh, tremendous. Um, Grant, would you read 8 to uh, um, 14 for us? And then maybe pray and we'll get to work. Sounds good. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the, f- the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Heavenly Father, thank you for another day that you have given us to study your word as a local body together publicly and freely. Father, thank you for the privilege of that. Uh, Thank you for this uh, past year in Romans, Father, as it's coming to a close. Thank you for um, all that you have done uh, in this study for all of us. And, Father, I pray that you would continue to bear fruit as we discuss loving one another and redeeming the time. Father, that these would not just be intellectual subjects or the subject of the day, but that they would be um, put to good use in the coming months, Father, for all of us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Grant. We have um, just an incredible command to start off verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. And um, it's interesting because if you go back to just a short little tour, look in chapter 1, verse uh, 14 is the first time we saw uh, what we owed, that we were obligated. You might remember this. It's been a long time ago, but uh, you guys have been very faithful. Uh, be coming for a long time all the way chapter 1 verse 14 um, I love this I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians both to the wise and to the foolish and uh, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome so he was under obligation he was under obligation to to everybody there to um to be eager to preach the gospel, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also to the Greek. And this was, remember, the theme of all Romans. For it is the righteousness of God, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So he was obligated, eager, and unashamed to preach the gospel. That was from a long time ago. I'll stop on your way back to Romans 13. At chapter 12, uh, chapter 8, verse 12. We were in chapter 8 for a while. Kind of like to go back to chapter 8 all the time. Chapter 8, verse 12. Again, there's an obligation that we owe. So then, brothers, we are debtors, 
not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Is that not just a fascinating thing? We no longer owe anything to the flesh. It is never um, something that we have to do, live according to the flesh anymore. He's freed us from that. And how thrilling that is, you know, the First Corinthians 10, 13, there is no temptation except what's common to man. And he's faithful. He'll always give you a way of escape from that. And that is just such an, an incredible thing. And then last week in chapter 13, verse 6, this is kind of our fourth time that we're looking at owing somebody. Now we, there, last week we owed taxes. Remember that? That was a little bit rough this time of year. Chapter 13, verse 6. Jerry's helping people with taxes. For because of you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. So we so we are to owe that. And now owe no one anything except to love um, each other. Um, kind of an amazing um, command there. It's a debt that we are to constantly pay but can never pay off. Origen said, I love this quote, said, the debt of love remains with us permanently and it never leaves us. This is the debt which we pay every day and forever owe. And then Stott gave three affirmations about how we're to love others. First of all, love is an unpaid debt. There's never a time that it's advantageous, beneficial, or even okay not to love someone. We saw that in throughout chapter 12, right? If you're looking at verse um, 9 all the way to 21, and we won't go through there. We saw 20 commands, 20 um imperatives in the way we should love each other there um i thought this was interesting and i hadn't really thought about it in this manner before um love is the fulfillment of the law love is not the end of the law but the fulfillment of it and stott says that the love and law need each other listen to this this was i thought insightful the law gives love its direction okay so if you just had Love without the law, there wouldn't be the direction. The law gives love its direction, and the love gives law its inspiration. That love gives law its inspiration, and so it's not dry. It's not just, I'm just not white knuckling it to obey the Bible, but it, there's a love there. And uh, and then finally, love does no harm to its neighbor. Um, I, and, and boy, I, you may kind of some of you might remember this but um rob you might remember this really in the 1980s the 1980s were great but somehow even in christian circles this passage i'm afraid just got butchered sometimes or the passage that would say that we're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves somehow and it would got it was completely i think i believe completely heretical that turned out to be a deal well then we need to love ourselves more if we're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves the more i love myself the more i can love my neighbor and i don't know how that became popular do you kind of remember a little bit of that a little, kind of with the self-esteem sort of no i just think that we're seeing that today though that you know, we are again aren't we yeah or maybe still yeah. Oh, it was something that was, I think MacArthur pretty much wrote a whole book about it. Um, and so this is for sure, and, and I think you know this, but just to emphasize, 
this is for sure not to say that we need to love ourselves more. And we're to love our neighbors. That self-love is the absolute opposite of what we need. And here's the reasoning for that. Chapter 8, remember how loved we are by the inner, the Holy Spirit's interceding for us. Jesus is interceding for us. God the Father is for us. Who can be against us? We don't need to have self-love. We're so loved by the Father. We can be so infatuated with that love that he's given us that we don't need to consider ourselves anymore. Right? I don't have to love myself. We do. We naturally do. That's why the command's there. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's that's just natural. And no one has to teach us how to do that. We're plenty in love for ourselves. But what's the joy of the gospel is to say, no longer does that have to be our main goal. Right? The, The Lord loves us in such a way. That's our identity in his love. And doesn't then that free us up to love our neighbors? You know, we tell the kids at school, wouldn't it be neat if every time you walked through that front door from then on, you didn't have to worry about you anymore. All you had to do was be concerned with everybody else. And how freeing would that be? Because what kind of percentage of time do we spend worrying about ourselves? Like, I mean, oh, for me, that's way too high. And here, this just frees us up, I think, to say, look at what this command um, is. And so the whole loving ourself thing is a, a nauseating wrong teaching. Um, and that's certainly not what we have here. Every believer can testify that God's love is far, far, far better than and more satisfying than self-love. That's for sure. To bathe in God's love, far better than, than bathe in our... John 3.30, right? John the Baptist says, let me decrease, let him increase. It's not a deal where we're supposed to try to raise ourselves up, love ourselves more. Um, so the 80s were good, but not that part. Um, Carter, help us out with verse 8 here. <clears throat> All right, and verse 8 sort of comes off the cusp of 13, 1 through 7. And if you remember, 1 through 7 was submitting to authorities, and those authorities would be um, those whom God had appointed uh, to execute judgment on evil and to promote righteousness. And in submitting to authorities, that also comes with it, submitting to regulations set by those governing officials, save that save those regulations that contradict the Word of God, we're still to submit to those regulations, even regulations regarding taxes. And when Paul talks about that, not to reiterate what Mr. Jerry said, but in verse 7, Paul says, Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And in verse 8, Paul sort of follows along the same line of logic. Owe no one anything. So in verse 8, Paul just reiterates exactly what he just said in verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. And so that instruction that Paul gives us is that Christians, well, first of all, what does it mean to owe anyone anything? It means to leave an outstanding debt, to leave a payment unaccounted for, um, to not pay really what is required. And Paul really practically tells us when it comes to taxes and revenues and that, those sort of things, we're not to leave any bill unaccounted for. We're to pay what is owed to whomever it is owed. And um, so if we think about this, just a picture that would help like draw this out 
every year we do this well we do the same thing most everyone does the same thing you go to a CPA or you go to someone that does your taxes and you turn in you turn uh, you give the forms in and they come back to you and they say look this is what you owe the government and you make the payment ready you draw it up or whatever <laughs> is involved with that and um, <clears throat> you click the electronic signature and with a stroke of the pen you're done for a year you sign off and you don't have to worry about it for a whole nother year until next year and I think that has really something to say about how we're to love as Christians so as Christians like Mr. Jerry said we're morally obligated to love in chapter 12 we talked about loving one another as brethren uh, to be kind to one another in the faith to show grace to one another to promote each other's godliness and growth in godliness and um, exposing that which is corrosive and harmful to the body to um, expose sin really and to get rid of anything that would hinder growth and holiness and that extends even with Christ's prescription to us to the unbelievers even those whom don't necessarily think in our own eyes deserve to be loved whether or not they may or may not seem to uh, should be loved in our own eyes we're called to love them anyhow called to love our enemies even and <clears throat> so to translate that to, to the picture we drew about the taxes and I think what Paul is getting at in in eight owe no one anything leave no outstanding payment he, le- he leaves no exception except one Oh, like leave no un, unpaid payment, no no unpaid bill, except to love each other. So, I think what he's getting at here is w- exactly what Mr. Jerry said. We will never get to a point to where, as Christians, we sign off on loving others. That that's a threshold we cannot meet. We we will will never meet. It's an ongoing requirement that we will we will ever be chasing after to love others. In, in other words, this is a debt which only continually accrues compounding interest. And it grows so fast that we will never be able to catch up to it. This is, this is not a distance that we can traverse. We will never be able to truly love one another as we ought to love one another. And so we will never reach the point to where we can honestly claim, I've loved someone so-and-so this much. I've, I've, loathed, I've loved them enough. I'm done. I'm good for life. That will never happen. And we can see this play out in the way Christ calls his disciples to be bottomless pits, bottomless reservoirs of, um, of love toward other people. If you, you don't have to turn there, but in Matthew 18, 21, just recount the story of Peter. He's, he's um, asking the Lord a question. He said, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive this guy? Do I have to forgive him seven times? And the Lord looks at him and he says, seven times, I, I truly I tell you, 70 times seven times, you have to forgive him. And in Matthew 5, 41, it, that wasn't, um, Mark went over that not too, too long ago, I don't think. The Lord is talking to his followers and to his disciples. And they are, he tells them, look, if someone forces you to go one mile, and remember, to force anyone to go one mile, it would be a Roman authority or an official or a soldier. And the citizen or the um, person who's not a Roman official would be legally obligated to go a mile with the Roman soldier mm. to carry his baggage, to carry his burden, his luggage, whatever it was. They were legally obligated to do that. And 
to think of the radical statement that Jesus made, look, if someone asks you, no, if someone forces you to go a mile, go with them two miles more. That is, that is just, and that directly translates to what um, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Remember when Paul tells us, love bears all things, love believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So just some aspects of love. Love, it, true, biblical, sincere love, it bears weight. It's not empty, and it's not easy. True, biblical love, it endures hardship. It's not comfortable. It's, it's, not, it's not easy at all. And just, to, just in thinking about just the nature of love, true, biblical love, in contrast to that, I think modern contemporary culture has set up these caricatures of love that um, are sort of Trojan horses in a sense. One caricature of love is um, just love is this thing that belongs to weak, spineless cowards, the doormats of the world, basically Christians, let anyone walk all over them and these sorts of things. But we know that not to be true of love. That's not true biblical love. And there's also the other caricature of love, which is just just this plain form of simple affirmation. You affirm my dreams. You affirm my thoughts. You affirm me in the highest respects. Anything that I aspire to and anything that I want, you, pre- you present no, no hindrance to me. You don't present any sort of, um, any sort of disturbance on, the moral, on my moral compass. You go along with anything that I want, and any temporal desire that I want to fulfill, you don't stand in the way of that. You don't stand in the way of that. You are nice to me. You say kind things to me. You promote me in anything that I uh, want to aspire to. Um, you just build me up. You say nice things, and that's love. Now, why those two things are basically just Trojan horses that which house self-absorption. What makes those things uh, characteristically caricatures and uh, weak uh, substitutes of love is because they're easy. Anyone can please and anyone can flatter. Anyone can say nice things and affirm the, the silly notions of reality that are completely wrong and bogus. That is not true biblical love. True biblical love begins, first of all, with the heart because it begins with the presence of an omnipotent and powerful and sovereign God who is present in the heart of his believer, reorienting the desires of of their heart to make them desire that which is pure, refined by fire, to desire that which is good, which is acceptable, which is perfect, and to hate darkness, to hate anything that is wicked and evil and corrosive and, and anything like that. And True biblical love is not just one inch thick. It is not a thin veneer of niceness, or it's not a thin veneer of um, just simply trying to please someone into doing favors for you, which is basically a re-manipulation, a complete turnaround of what love truly is, trying to get good for yourself, manipulating someone else to get good for yourself. True biblical love is costly, and it is undesirable in a lot of cases. It's rigorous. True biblical love, it costs someone something dearly. I mean, who could really truly bear the weight, bear the weight of sincerely loving someone else from the heart? 
because that would take a complete upheaval of everything that we want. If you place any of the any um, prominent figure of modern contemporary culture under the full weight of true biblical love, they would be crushed because their love is easy. Anyone can do that. Anyone could simply please on the surface just for the sake of pleasing and get what we want. That is that takes no effort whatsoever. True biblical love it hurts. I mean, it, it takes time, and it's not just this one thing where you punch in and you punch out once a day. True biblical love is constant. It's persistent. It never, it never just, just throws anything up in the air and goes away. It isn't a all or none. It is like to truly love all people, those who hate you, to truly love and seek the benefit at the cost of yourself, it, to truly do that for anyone, I mean, who could bear that weight? Anyone that tries to masquerade those versions of love would be crushed under the weight of that. There is no way they could keep that. And I think that's that's a reason why Paul, in his explanation for the command, he says, you know, to truly love anyone, that's the fulfillment of the law. It's almost an unbearable task to truly love anyone well. And, um, ju- and if you can just think of the person that is the most difficult for you to love and know that God requires of you a debt of love that will never end for them, a continual seeking of their good at the cost of yourself. It's, In other words, you owe them a debt of love which exceeds the gross national debt. It is... It is a type of love that is unheard of. That's why we said in chapter 12 when we were talking about this, this is not natural stuff. This does not just come out of, you know, this doesn't come, this doesn't come out of just simple nurturing, and, you know, nurturing the faculties that are already within us. This takes a sovereign God reorienting your heart. This takes the work of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is, this is different. This is real love. Now, there, in talking about Paul's explanation, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. We know that there are three, like there are, there are m- many parts of the law in the Old Testament. There's the civil law, the ceremonial law, and then there's the moral law, which, um, if you remember, com- is comprised of the Ten Commandments. God wrote that basically with his own finger on the tablets on Sinai. And the Ten Commandments are like those mentioned in verse 9. And they're summed up, they're summed up basically by just one word, wrong, do not wrong your neighbor, love your neighbor. And if you remember in Matthew 22, 34 through 40, you don't have to turn there. Jesus is sort of confronted with the Pharisees and they ask him a question. This is sort of a question that is a uh, gotcha type of question, the type of question you ask at presidential press conferences to catch them in the words. Um, they ask him, so a lawyer comes up and he says, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And he tells him, the greatest commandment is to love your God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Every fiber of your being should be aimed and directed at loving the Lord your God every fiber of your being. And he goes on and gives them more than what the guy asked for. He says, and the second is just like it, is like it, very much like it. To love your neighbor as you love yourself. Like Mr. Jerry said, not, it's not permission for self-love. That's a complete opposite of true biblical love. Jesus is saying there is 
an honest and sincere giving up of yourself for a fellow image bearer who bears the image of the one to whom you owe your entire being. That's exactly, that, those, were the, those are the two things that, that Christ says when to, in answering that question. And everything else, everything, you know, the law is not unnecessary. It's not unimportant. But everything else is peripheral. It's subsidiary. They're like, everything else is like the, the legs of a table holding up the main platform, which is love God, love people. Which, again, is who could, if that is the sum of the law, who could bear the weight of that? To truly love God, and out of a love for God, truly love those whom He has created. I mean, truly and sincerely. And I think as followers of Christ, we see Christ as the ultimate example for this. I mean, even while we were enemies, while we hated Him, He gave Himself and paid a penalty that He did not owe on our behalf. He did this. He's the epitome of the example of true biblical love. And as followers of Christ, I think that's where we turn to when we when we're confronted with a um, with a command like this. And so, what what is it? What I forgot who said it, but R.C. Sproul has said it many times. Um, the Lord command what you will, and and grant what you command. So, grant what you or command what you will, and grant what you command. He will give us. He will give us grace to grow, not in perfect acquisition of this love, but in a constant striving toward truly loving others out of a love for Christ. That's so good. Yeah, isn't it great that the Lord Jesus bought us this ability to do this? The fruit of the Spirit now comes to us that we have the ability. The word reservoir was good. We have this reservoir that can that love can flow out of. And it, and it is a beautiful thing when we love each other as we ought. Grant? Yeah, maybe I can just add in a little bit on that. Those are some good thoughts, Carter. Um, I think y'all are right. It, uh, this is a quote that I got. It is impossible to love God and to not love people. God's heart, His very nature is love. If the Spirit of God dwells in us, his love will flow through us to others. God is love, so if His Spirit is in us, we will love others. Um, this uh, love today is a very confusing thing, right? It's talked about all the time. That seems to be all anybody's ever talking about is, this is how you should love, or you are not loving me the way that you should. Like It's just back and forth all the time is love. And uh, the definitions are just all over the place. Everybody's defining it the way that they want to define uh, love. Um, we had the sexual revolution in the 60s where love was just licentiousness. Uh, then in my generation we had the Disney follow your, your heart, true love's kiss era. Uh, now we have self-love and then love can be absolutely whatever you want it to be with ever decreasing boundaries on what can be defined as acceptable love. Uh, it's typically romantic in nature and, and revolves around self-fulfillment, whatever makes me happy. And we've seemingly lost the uh, true biblical love of neighbor uh, in our day and age because um, we can have people severely mistreat others or leave them in dire medical situations, you know, the opposite of the Good Samaritan, but claiming to be loving and accepting people the whole time. So love has become a complete farce in our generation. So I think it's important to try to figure out what it is. And what's interesting is Paul places the law right next to love and just overlaps them together. And if you think about 
how love is described today, law is the antithesis of love, right? You're restricting my self-expression or my love. You can't have any commandments um, if you want to be a loving person. The, uh, the law takes away from the ability to love, but what Paul does is just turn that completely on its head, that the law is fulfilled by love. Um, you can't adequately fulfill the law if you don't have love. Um, the way I thought about it is uh, I've been doing some electrical stuff at the house, and your wire carries the electrical current to whatever thing you want to turn on, and you have to have it wired correctly. Um, so the law allows our love to be expressed correctly. It's how we show love to one another. Um, and one way, in John 3.16, you can describe it as God loved the world in this way, that he sent his only son. So love is not just a positive emotion towards someone. It, it contains action. But I think it is It's sort of overlapping in that it's emotive in nature. This is the way um, a guy named Andrew Murray said. He said, love is emotive, it's motive, and it's expulsive. It is emotive and therefore creates affinity with and affection for the object. It is motive in that it impels to action. It's not just affection. Uh, And it is expulsive because it expels what is alien to the interest of that which is loved. That's what I thought would be a good way to think about it. Um, it's a motive in that it's in our emotions, but it also demands action and proper action to be expressed rightly, and then it seeks the utmost good of that person. Those would be three good tenets about it. And so typically, when I think about the law, I think about it in terms of requirement and how to live, uh, more so as self-restriction, right? A list of rules that must be abided by, and it certainly is that. Um, and it's usually addressed in a negative way, such as thou shalt not steal. It's the commandment of the negative. Um, and with that definition, uh, it's it, early on in, in when I became a Christian, it was hard. You know, you read Psalm 119, and you see that we're to love, like how much the psalmist loves God's law. And you want to echo that and say, yeah, the law is great. But for me, it was kind of hard to understand that because while I did want to obey God's law, I, I didn't know that I could just say it that sincerely that I loved it so much Um, but the more I've come to study it I have come to love it because I think that um, I've become more convinced that the law allows for maximum human flourishing it's the complete height of wisdom Um, and that's what the psalmist is getting at he's wiser than all those around him because he's instructed by the law of God And I really do believe that it tells us how to rightly live and how to love someone rightly, how to seek their utmost good. And this passage, passage, I think, confirms that, that the law are the conduits to how we love our neighbor. Um, That is why the summary of the law is to love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. It is the lack of harm in any way towards neighbor. And Mr. Jerry, you were getting at it. Paul is assuming self-love. We all seek our own interests by default. It's not commanding us to love ourselves more. That's just the assumption because of how we act. We're we're always seeking our own interests. But we're to love others uh, in the same way that we love ourselves. And uh, Augustine said it this way, The rule of love is that one should wish his friend to have all the good things he wants to have himself and should not wish the evils to befall his friend which he wishes to avoid himself. I thought that was a very succinct way of saying it. And Paul says that the law is not love, but it is fulfilled by love. Fulfill, uh, Murray says, is richer than obeying. It means that the law has received the full measure of that which it requires. The completeness of conformity is thereby 
expressed. The law is not deprived or depreciated, um, but can only be rightly fulfilled with love. If you lose the love, then you simply descend into legalistic dogma. And I think this sort of negates the outside world's view of Christianity as just sort of this religious prude who simply wants everybody to follow the rules and has no love or joy in them. Um, much like what we saw in Romans 2 with the, the hypocrite Jew. They just want everybody to follow the rules. Uh, and typically, they don't want to apply that same standard to themselves, but they lack any sort of love. So they're not even completely f uh, fulfilling the law that they claim to. And so Paul goes on to list a few of the commandments. Um, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor, neighbor as yourself. And I typically, when I think of those commandments, I've always sort of thought of them in terms of myself, which I don't think is necessarily wrong to do. Because primarily these would be violations towards God relating to ourselves if we were to transgress them. But um, I, I do think we should think about them in terms of others, though, is what Paul is saying. Because not murdering is the way to think about it. Sorry, I'm getting tongue-tied. But not murdering because it, it is wrong to be that kind of person is not the fullness of that commandment, I don't think. It is wrong to murder because it would be a violation of God's law for one, but at the same time, um, it would be the gross taking of life of someone else made in the image of God. It takes from others as well. Same with stealing and coveting. It, and in my mind, it opens up the law to a whole new level because when we are made new, we want to love others, but we often fall short. We sort of define it uh, on our own, and we, we will fall short on how to love one another. So this uh, gives us the conduit to how we should express it. And John MacArthur said it this way, for thou shalt not commit adultery. He said, it's a moot point if you love somebody, right? And you hear a couple, you'll hear a couple say, well, we committed adultery because we loved each other too much. And my reply to that is, no, you committed adultery because you loved each other too little. Because love doesn't defile. Love doesn't steal purity. Love doesn't rob holiness. Love doesn't do that. Lust does that. Selfishness does that. You never commit adultery, and you never commit fornication because you love too much. You do that because you love too little. I thought that was incredibly clear, and Paul says it basically the same thing in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, in, in chapter 4, he says, Starting in verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Which I always thought was interesting. He puts the sexual immorality and adultery right next to not transgressing your brother, which is exactly what's Paul doing here. The negative things would be self-restriction, but yes, so that we can adequately love our brother. We don't take our brother's wife or, or anything like that because that would not be loving them correctly. Sorry, that's, yeah, that's, that's great. That's really great. Well, look, he goes on then to say, that, and this is it's just perfect how this, this follows. Look at verse 11. Besides this, you know the time. Okay, so besides what he's saying, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Salvation in the past was justification. Remember Romans 4 and 5, that we are um, now free 
from the penalty of sin, um, completely, even ridiculously free from it. Present is sanctification, right? We're being free from the power of sin. Those are chapter 6 to 8. And then here, um, he's really talking glorification. We're being freed from the presence of sin. That um, time is coming. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies, drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, sensuality, not in quarrelsome and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So there's three time references. The time is already here to wake up, right? I love that. Let's wake up. Let's get after it. There's no more time to lollygag. No more time to sleep. Number two, our salvation is nearer now than it was. And number three, the night is nearly given place to the day. The night is the age of darkness. That's what we're living in. The day is Christ's return. That's coming. And I love it's not backwards. It's not like, man, this is almost over. The The good part's almost over. No, no, no. We're, it's getting better. We're closer than we've ever been to, um, to where we belong, to where our citizenship is. So there's three double sentences there. The negative and positive aspects giving us huge contrasts. And I love these contrasts in Romans. They form a, a radical antithesis for sure. So if you look at it, number verse 13 were to uh, walk properly as in the daytime not in orgies drunkenness sexual immorality sensuality not in quarrel uh quarreling or jealousy okay so we're to um really put this on put on the um the a, a new um way to appropriate clothing really appropriate behavior um, is that one. To put on the appropriate clothing is before that. I'm sorry. Look at verse um, 12. So then let us cast off the word of darkness and put on the armor of light. Okay, so the appropriate clothing, the appropriate behavior, and then the appropriate um, preoccupations. So let's put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh and gratify its desires. Um, I asked Kevin, I love the way Kevin Poe redeems the time. As a man is a busy, busy man. What what gives you the convictions that you've developed as a believer to just use your time so so diligently? And I I think all of us could probably say we'd want to learn from you on this. Well, I think when, when you're talking about the word time, um, most of my life I've, I've lived it unwisely. Yeah. And so I'm running out of time. And so I turned 45 last year. And so uh, I spent more time in my life being unwise than wise. And I think within the last 11 years of my life, by the grace of God, I've learned to manage that wisely by His Word and by His grace. And so I'm taken to um, Ephesians 5, 16, when you were asking me that earlier. It says, look carefully how uh, then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And so, time is a gift. And people say, I, I need more time. No, God has already orchestrated that and giving you enough time. He's given you the perfect yeah. amount of time. Everything He does is perfect and ordained. So, use it wisely and be obedient in that. And so, in my time, whether it means in my life, whether it means I have to get up three, four hours later, or earlier, 
or whether I'm at lunch sitting there and getting rid of the distractions in my life. Put away the phone, put away, turn off the TV, turn off the radio. We have to use our time widely, and that's how I do it. I, I, particularly, I guess that's what you're asking, and that leads to obedience. It's what Carter was talking about earlier, and he's talking about Deuteronomy 10. It, um, they asked how should we live, and um, I'll read that real quick too. It says, what does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve Him, the Lord, with all your heart, with all your soul, to keep His commandments and His statutes. And in that obedience is time. Time falls into that. You mm -hmm. have the perfect amount of time on earth to study His Word in prayer. And by His mercy and grace, you can live through that and learn more and point us back to Jesus each and every time to learn who He is. Take time in that. And I don't have... We, don't, we learn through Liliana that the time is short, right? Yeah, that's right? And it can be tomorrow. So we want to put in the best time now in studying His Word through prayer and obedience and community and serving and loving others. Through that and through this community, I think North Avenue does a great job of that, honestly. But we use, everyone here seems to use their time wisely. But in my day, in my 24 hours, I am going to use it wisely. I love it. Because I have spent decades <laughs> in foolishness. Yeah, and I don't. I don't. When I put, I put away that old man. He's gone. That's it's time to be mature in that and to live righteous. That's so good because that's just what it says here, isn't it? Like that's you're you're putting on the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. You're talking about Scott Loyana. These came from Scott. They're direct quote from him. Uh, why is time so important? You may remember these. I'm sure you do. First of all, time's short. Time is short. Um, Thomas Hobbes' last words were these, if I had the whole world, I would give it to live one day. Time cannot be recovered. You can't slow time down. You can't pause time. You can't go back in time. You can't go back in time and say an unword, uh, an unkind word. Jonathan Edwards, if you want to see a man who's similar to Kevin in the way he wanted to use time, go to those res, uh, resolutions. How many are there, 70-something? 70 72, I think. 72, they are something. Whew, really challenging. Go read them, mark them down, and, uh, and, and put them somewhere where you can read them. Never to lose one result, never to lose one moment at a time, but to improve it the most prof, but to use it in the most profitable way I possibly can. The ripple effect, the effects of our choices, number three, the effects of our choices are real. Each choice we make as a Christian and as a human has a reality in history, and it affects all those around us. That's huge. Time is a gift, number four. It's a gift of God. We all have, I love the way you put this, Kev, we all have 24 hours a day. We have just the right amount of time. Sometimes you wish, man, I wish I had another half hour. Nope, you got just the right amount. You have uh, 1,440 minutes. You got 86,000 uh, 86, seconds each moment. A pref precious gift from God. Um, so please use that um, wisely. What are hindrance to redeeming the time? Idleness, lack of planning, laziness, spiritual carelessness. We've got to watch out. Got to watch out for those Matthew Henry said, if you pass your days in idleness, you're practically begging Satan to tempt you to sin. Um, I think that's very uh, convicting. So how do we get better redeeming the time? These are directly from Scott. Number one, have an earthly mindset. I think that's, I think that's true. And that's this passage. It revs you up. We don't have time anymore to sin. Let's put sin to bed. There's not time to do that anymore. 
because the night is far gone, the day is at hand. Let's get after it. Let's change. Let's look to, and I love that, 10 years ago, Kev 11, where all of a sudden, you're a new man, and those first 34 years wasted these next 11, what an investment. Yeah. Oh, man. Number two, have a gospel focus. You can certainly understand that from from um, Scott would would certainly bring us to that point. And so good. So have an eternal mindset. Be gospel focused. Be word saturated. How do we get better at redeeming the time? Be word saturated. And and I love Kev went right to those passages when uh, when we're talking about number four. Spend more time praying and cultivate Thanksgiving in prayer. Oh. Isn't it something if each one of our moments would be so thankful for all that God's given us? Aren't we grateful for one more chance to to learn how to love somebody, Carter, like you and Grant were talking about, to learn how to grow, to learn to Lord, love the Lord Jesus a little bit more, to be sanctified today. When he began a good work, is going to carry it on to completion, to grow in him one more day, have that opportunity. What a great opportunity we have. And the unbeliever, they're, it's, they're, they're missing out so much. Use those days wisely. And number five, make use of the community that God has placed you in. And Kev, I think you're right. I, I really, really think uh, the way Carter and Grant have used um, the time to be in Romans and to, to study and to be so faithful and um, to come and to, to be able to share you guys have invested so well in in North Avenue to be able to pour into each other. We are so encouraged anytime we get together. We are so encouraged that people are pouring in um, to each other. This morning, Ben Woodard came to uh, help get me out of bed, and he was talking about how, um, once again, Josh Chronic had just the impact he's having um, on his boys, and just I, just for no reason just being chronic and just doing things using the time wisely making the uh the 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 most of each opportunity redeeming uh the time so let's do um as we look at this let's see invest our time i don't think we should spend time let's invest it remember that we're in the sermon on the mount store up for yourselves treasures in heaven not moth and rest destroy and where thieves break in and steal we don't need to um, store up treasures on earth anymore. Too, too, not enough time for that. So uh, let's do that. Eyes off God. We take our eyes off His yeah. holiness and His fearfulness. And David slaying Goliath, he, he had his eyes set on God. And when he saw Bathsheba, he had he took his eyes off God. Yeah. And he sinned. Boy, so we good. take our we take our eyes off God. And I think that that leads to less fear and trembling. And there's two types that C.S. Lewis said. There's two types of people in the world. There's, there's those who um, say they pray the prayer, Father, your will be done. And then there's the person who said, that, whom God says, okay, have it your way. Mm. So which wow. one are you going to be today is my question. That's really good. That's really good. Yeah. Well, let's go to the Lord and ask him for his grace. Father, we are very um, inspired by this passage. What a great passage. We know it to be true. We know that we've never, this is, um, there's time is so short we've never been this close salvation uh, is at hand today is the day of salvation you have freed us from the penalty of sin and justification from the 
um, power of sin and sanctification, freeing us from the power of sin. And someday soon, someday very soon, freeing us from the presence of sin. Lord, we thank you for uh, millenniums of time to be with you where there will no longer be any temptation, where there will no longer be any sin, where there will only be pure, unadulterated for you and for others. Um, we can't wait. And Father, we pray now that we would practice that, that we would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, even as um, Kevin mentioned, that our um, that we would live by faith and not by sight, um, that we would look to you for our satisfaction rather than any comfort, that we would store up our treasures in heaven rather than on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So we um, commit to you um, our lives and ask that you would inspire us to live them uh, in a manner worthy of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.